netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX Podcast from FXGuide.com. Thanks for joining us for this FX Podcast. I'm Jeff User. This FX Podcast is where we talk one-on-one with top visual effects artists doing cutting-edge work. We'd like to mention that we do many other podcasts, so check them all out over at fxguide.com slash podcasts. So VR is huge. I'm recording this as E3 is in in town, and of course, lots of announcements, lots of VR. There's been a lot of announcements of cameras. It seems like every day there's another camera rig announced. If you've been ignoring VR, you're doing so at your own peril. And I can say this after speaking with artists who tell me that um, they're approached about VR projects. Some have just come off VR projects. I had one guy tell me that he'd like to take a break now from VR projects after coming off a particularly large one, but um, you can understand the complexity. And today we're going to speak on the FX podcast with the team from the mill about a project they worked on for 13 months called Help. Now, 13 months is a long time, but think about the complexity of doing a VR project like this. Um, And there's a video, behind the scenes video, that we'll put a link up to um, in addition to this episode, which will inform you a lot about the process um, and show you how important... Pipeline is so important in R&D, too, in dealing with projects like this with just tremendous amounts of data and complex problems to solve before the shoot, on the set, and in post. So at NAB, the Foundry did a presentation on VR, and I watched that on their live stream, and it really raised my awareness of some of the technical issues and stitching and seaming and, you know, uh, actors crossing the seams between warped cameras and things like that. This mill project takes that discussion to the next level as we're talking about a real-world project and uh, not just a demo-type situation. I think you'll find this very informative, and I, I think you'll see it raises issues that you may not have even considered if you haven't been involved in something like this. So let's join now our Mike Seymour, speaking first with creative director Gwen Lydiard, and the second voice you hear is 2D lead artist Daniel Thurison. So how did you guys first get involved in the project? I understand it was like 13 months in actual production. It was, um, and that's because we got involved very early on. Um, we had looked at uh, other projects with the Google ATAP group um, that never quite gained traction, and through that uh, connection, when Bullet uh, started to work with Google and develop ideas with Justin Lin, um, I think we were high on the list of people to come meet and, and discuss this kind of project. So at that very early age, as soon as they started to develop ideas, because of the sort of unknown world of VR, we, we got involved right at that early phase of starting to brainstorm camera rigs, lens choices, how, how to lay this out, how to execute. So it, that's one of the main reasons that the, the project ran so long for us was just getting in there at that incredibly early stage and understanding how we're going to tie this project together. Yeah, as I understand it, the rig changed quite a lot from those early discussions. Like it went from, you know, it was like 16 or something down to the eventual four camera rig of a red setup. It did. Um, There were early days where we were looking at uh, many more cameras, uh, much more in the vein of what you see with some of the GoPro rigs for VR where you're seeing, you know, it's almost like a a sphere of of multiple cameras. But we weren't seeing the quality out of each camera, and we knew that it was going to be a night shoot, so we weren't seeing the the range in the footage. And it was also just an unknown quantity of how to stitch that footage together, how to deal with that footage. 
So for a lot of reasons, we wanted something that we, we, we were more familiar with, more reliable, um, and fewer seams. Um, specifically for this project as well, we were looking at shooting it as a, a mono. It's not a stereoscopic experience for something like the Oculus Rift headset. So that also pushed us more in that direction where we weren't, we were just considering how to stitch this into that perfect single lat-long image. The fact that it wasn't designed for a head rig, did that actually give you more kind of latitude or was it uh, so, sort of unfamiliar territory and made it more difficult? I think the not having stereoscopic uh, aspect to it was certainly a blessing. I think that would have been a, a huge extra complication, even though... As I'm sure Dan can talk about more, when we say stitching for this project, it's really kind of a, a misrepresentation of what the guys did in 2D. It was much more of a deconstruction um, in, in a 3D sense of projecting all the footage out and re, uh, reconstituting the plates in a, in a 3D environment and then filming that back through a virtual camera. And that, uh, that process would lend itself to some kind of a stereoscopic conversion. So even if we went back to square one and the mandate was that this needed to be stereoscopic, I would probably choose the same camera rig and probably opt for a, a more post-stereoscopic conversion. Well, before we get into that stitching and stuff, let's just finish up on the rig. So the rig you ended up with, this four uh, red camera rig, um, I understand uh, that got built specially. Was that Practical Magic or someone like that that built the actual rig? They did... They were much more involved with the concept when it was multiple cameras, uh, and they did the bracing plates for the final rig. Um, but as we pushed so much to go in more of the direction uh, of traditional gear that we understood, uh, so that we could guarantee the syncing between, you know, the shutter sync between each camera uh, and all of that, it became much more of a, an exercise for the, the camera department uh, for our first Stacy Jonas who did like a really fantastic job. He came up with some really nice little tips and tricks to, to make sure all the cameras were locked together and, and working really well. So what lenses did you have on the uh, system? To Canon, uh, 8-15mm. Uh, it's actually a digital SLR lens. But as we started to investigate lenses, we found there are some very old, more cinema-orientated fisheye lenses. We looked at uh, some really interesting Nikkor lenses from, I think they're from the 70s. Yeah. But even though they're, they're probably a higher quality build, the fact that their coatings on them are just out of date uh, and the size of those lenses and the weight and the, the difficulty working with them kind of negated um, uh, using any, anything sort of from that era. And then there just isn't a modern fisheye lens for cinema cameras. There's, there's stuff like the uh, Arri or Zeiss 8R, I think it was, that we, we looked at, which yeah, is huge thing. You know, super wide <laughs> and really interesting. But anything that's rectilinear just can't film uh, a 480-degree sweep. Um, it's sort of an impossibility of those lenses. So when we realized that we had to go in the direction of fisheye, uh, our options were quite limited, uh, and out of what we could find, that was by far the best choice, the Canon 
See, I was just really curious about that because I understand why you might go with a Canon lens, but you went for the 8-15. to 15. I would have thought for your team what you'd really want is a fixed lens, and Canon makes a 4.5 and an 8, and uh, the 4.5 would give you 180 degree on the on the Epic. Why, why get up 8-15 to 15 when you run the risk that, you know, it's not quite as precise on, on where you are on the zoom? When you speak about the 4.5, do you mean something that's for an APS-C sensor? As yeah, in if, you put the, if you put the Canon 4.5 stills lens, the L series, whatever it is, on a, an Epic, which I've done, it obviously gives 180 degrees. The, the 8mm doesn't, obviously it does on an SLR, but it doesn't on a... So. One of the reasons is we wanted that option of knowing how to film, fill as much of the, the film back as possible. Um, the fact that if we decided that we wanted to actually zoom in very slightly and fill up the film back to boost our resolution, uh, that we had that option. Um, right. And we found that the geometry was really good. Because uh, you waste the, a lot with a fisheye, don't you? Because you've just got a huge amount of sensor that's black on the corners. Exactly, and uh, the 8 to 15 we can set up in such a way that you, you are cropping slightly. Like you, we, we had the, the cameras mounted in portrait. Ah, of uh, course, okay, yep. So that you had the 180 degree sweep vertically, but then not a full, uh, the full 180 degree horizontally, and that's why we also went with four cameras. If you had the full 180 degree sweep, you could knock it down to three cameras, but... We wanted that boost in resolution, so at that point there's a decision to go with four as opposed to three. Um, and so by, by going with four, you can get a lot more resolution. It's not just that you've added an extra camera, it's the fact that you can allow a larger coverage of your film back. Right. Yeah, that makes, uh, that makes sense. So the only trouble about that, though, of course, is that uh, the 8 to 15 is an F4. Did you, you were shooting at night, was low light going to be a problem or do you think you had enough uh, ISO in the camera? Because obviously noise is going to fight you. Yeah, absolutely. It was something we investigated a huge amount um, and we, I believe we changed out, I forget which filter it is exactly, one of the filters within the camera to, that they now say is, is better for low light. Um, that the, you know, We involved the guys from the R&D department of RED, discussed all the settings that we could possibly tweak to, to push out as much noise as possible. Right. Um, and the, the issue as well of with such a slow lens that you want to pump your environment full of light, but in the VR world, it's a really hard thing to do. Um, any light you put in, <laughs> yeah. you're never going to film back and then you're going to have to paint it out. So it's a, it's a real sort of catch-22 of you want a lot of light, but where do you put those lights? And not just seeing the light, but something we found in uh, a proof of concept test that we did is the camera shadow is horrendous. Um, you really have to dance around your camera shadow because uh, it's, it's almost guaranteed that it's going to ripple across an actor at one point. And it's, as the camera shadow moves, obviously with the movement of the camera, there's no motion blur on your camera shadow, so you get this horrendous, crisp, perfect image of your camera rippling across your scene that has to be taken out later on. Um, so it, it was a big consideration and it was something we just had to accept the fact that the, it was a relatively slow lens and uh, another reason why we're thankful that the, the RED camera has the range to sort of pull that up and I think we pulled it up a huge amount 
we really pulled it up to that almost breaking point where you did start to see unpleasant grain. Um, did you have to de degrain it, denoise it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah we did. I mean, it, but since we ended up shooting a lot of stuff on stage, that also, in the end, did really help. Right. On the, on the proof of concept, the, the grain was pretty, pretty severe. And, but we did plan for a, a, a part degrain, denoise uh, pipeline that we worked out that actually took care of a lot of it. Before, so now, even if, if I was walking around on set with a 8mm or a, just even a 20mm on a camera, I could afford to be virtually handheld because you don't really notice bumps and stuff. Um, yeah. You ended up suspending the camera on Spidercam, but I'm wondering, given the nature of the project, was the thoughts that small amounts of camera movement weren't going to show up because I'm going to be wide or I could zoom out or zoom in, I should say, so that I, uh, you know, want to be very, very stable. I mean, it just feels like an unfamiliar territory. You're not really sure how people are viewing what you're doing. Sure. Um, Justin's view was always that he wanted his, his camera move to be what he described as a fluid master, that he wanted this sort of continuous, smooth-natured move. Um, and I think that works very well for this kind of media, that small vibrations, you do pick them up. It sort of feels unnatural. Uh, we did put camera shake back in oh, really? uh, at times, like uh, at the very end when there's the, the large explosion as the monster emerges from the bank of the LA River, there's, you know, there's camera shake in there and it, it works effectively, like you, you feel it and it, it translates as you'd want. Um, and we did it on the train as well. Uh, the, the set location for the train was a static set. Um, and to give that sort of rock and sway of a moving train, there's this sort of subtle sway put back into that, that camera move. And it, it's just sort of, it has to be done in a very delicate manner. Um, that you don't just want it to feel like you're, you're rotating around a single point, like your bubble that you're immersed in is, is just sort of pivoting on one axis. It just has to have a little bit more flavor to it than that. Okay, so we've got a spherical capture, which obviously on set you're going to add a lot of CG into. And obviously in the normal world we can adjust for lenses to get the CG to, you know, undistort the, C the uh, live action plate and then the CG kind of doesn't distort. But here you've got lat-long maps, which are inherently incredibly distorted. And you can't sort of undistort them in the traditional sense of just shooting a, uh, a grid and undistorting and then redistorting with a CG. And on top of that, it, it's just like a blur at the bottom of frame is different from a blur in the middle of frame versus a blur at the top of frame. Like, what was the sort of general approach to this? Are we going to build our own tools? Are we just going to have to modify what's there? I mean, you must have had this like a fundamental problem of just how do we even approach this? Yeah. Um, and we, again, we saw that from as soon as we decided to use fisheye lenses that that was sort of the initiation of that discussion of how we're going to deal with these kind of distortions because there is no off-the-shelf uh, de-lensing of a fisheye. Yeah. Um, that's something that we, we found we had to write and we went through a lot of interesting iterations of trying to figure out a way of measuring it more practically, that, that distortion of uh, mounting a camera nodally and then uh, rotating it uh, and watching how a point tracks across the screen, but the, the mechanics of it just weren't accurate enough. So our R&D here set to and uh, used, 
use the same sort of math libraries that we'd use for something like photogrammetry, where you were, where we came up with the idea of you do what we term the lens dance, where we wave a, a smaller lens grid around in front of the fisheye field of view, um, and we track how that's distorting and shifting in that field of view, uh, and that's what we we use as sort of a, a baseline to to unwrap into the lat long view. But, but if I'm looking at a render, let's say I'm a 2D artist and I sit down at my desk first thing in the morning and I pull up a render overnight, is that render a lat long or is that render something that is normal in, in patches? I mean, I don't understand, just don't understand how you solve the problem fundamentally. We rendered directly into lat long. Right. Um, it took quite a lot of finesse to get each package to give you the exact same flavor of lat long. Um, subtle differences between rendering it out of Mantra or Arnold or through Nukes, uh, uh, Latlong or spherical renders, all had slightly different flavors and slightly different filtering and slightly different issues. Did you use all uh, of those or? Yes. Right. Uh, and we did use a combination of occasionally towards the end of the project, certainly where we wanted small areas rendered faster, we would render them as a traditional, we point a traditional camera at a certain area. Maybe we wanted to just change uh, a part of uh, a 3D environment where we'd moved a car or something. We could point a camera at that and, and render that out as a, a standard rectilinear render and then transform that back and stick that into our full lat long. But primarily, the R2D team essentially learned how to deal with. Yeah, it's, a, it's one of those things. You just kind of learn how to, to look at it, but, it's, but we also had uh, different viewing tools that we created through RV, for instance, that we made it possible to actually view it as a spherical. We reviewed our work all the time as a 360 degree, and we also used, as Gwen mentioned, like we could also view our stuff as a rectilinear uh, images where it's just basically, of course, just flatten it out so you can see it normally and work on it normally and then pass. But your, your sort of notional um, lat long that you're getting from, well, not notional, the actual lat long you're getting from these L-series lenses of Canon that are zoom lenses, that's going to be, I imagine, not exactly the same as the export from Arnold, or the render from Arnold, which is a perfect lat long rendering by its camera. So there still has to be some kind of variation. I mean, for a start, I'd want the bloody lenses to never change on, on any of the cameras. But, <laughs> but then I'd want to get some mapping between my perfect lat long out of Arnold and my notionally perfect, but actually in reality not quite perfect, stitching from, from my cameras. Where it comes into the, our concept that it was much more than a, a stitch. It wasn't that we applied our, um, our D lens, which was a translation from the fisheye to a lat long, um, and then just soft matted the plates together. It was it was a lot more than that. It was the the process was much more along the lines of we took uh, the fisheye, we delensed it into a, a lat long format, and then picked a rectilinear crop from that. Uh, that rectilinear crop, I wanted to give it some real world basis, so I based it off the camera that we were using the the Red Epic Dragon film back uh, and then gave it uh, a virtual lens of, I think it was about 4.5 millimeter. So you came out with a, this sort of hugely wide but still rectilinear image that we could track and track very accurately. Um, 
and uh, track all. We had to track each plate individually, but then sort of weight them together to get it to get the tracking software to solve it as a as a combined camera rig, as opposed to having cameras that moved too independently. And then once we had the very solid camera track, we had taken LiDAR information of every location and our 2D guys had also figured out the position of all our characters. Your team's done a spectacular job and I'm really impressed, but I mean, you're just discussing the tracking then. I'd imagine that several of your trackers would have committed ritualistic suicide over trying to get the tight tracks on this. It was definitely an interesting issue. It was was finding that balance of getting a really good track, but a really good track that worked with each camera uh, together. That it was easy to get a really good track with one camera, but then getting that to work with all four cameras together, that was uh, the really hard part. Excuse me. Okay, and, and with all of this, uh, we skipped the whole stage where you guys managed to come up with a cool tool for doing an approximation on set. You, uh, you did a kind of a, I think you called it mill stitch, the, um, the low-res stitch on set. So, yeah, was that always something from the outset or was that uh, something that came out of all of this R&D? That was uh, something that the bullet wanted really early on. Um, as soon as we started to get into the camera rigs and how, how this was going to work, it became very clear that we wanted more than just sitting there looking at these very warped fisheye lenses uh, to give Justin something that was more tangible. Um, and we, you know, is one of the reasons that we went in the in the direction of the fisheye was uh, it's a lens that we use all the time for shooting HDRI. So we had a a really good idea of how to do that basic stitch of uh, unwrapping it and doing a soft mat and putting that back together. And so the the key for the mill stitch was to figure out how to do that in real time and and pulling together our understanding of hardware uh, and that understanding of how to do that stitch and putting that all together. And then also giving the director a nice way of controlling it. So we gave him a little uh, Xbox controller to look around with. We also gave him a touch screen so that he could really jump from looking one direction to, to jumping all the way over to another. And then also a handheld device that they could stand next to the camera rig on set. And it approximated uh, what the, the, the phone finally does of as you move around and look in any direction, you you get that viewport. So we had, it was, it was sort of a really bulky version of that because it had to have a, a wireless transmitter and a, a motion detector and all, all these things duct taped together because it was built so fast. But it worked really well to be able to stand next to the, the camera rig on set and look in any direction. So it seems like this is indicative of the whole project, right? Like, I mean, video split on set is something that no one spends a lot of time worrying about normally, but from the video split on set right through to the smallest aspects, like, the, as we said, the tracking, um, everything seemed to be just harder. I mean, talk to me about how you solved the blur and the motion blur, because like even a paintbrush, if you're just blurring with a brush, that doesn't necessarily work correctly in 2D when you've got a lat long projection. Yeah, it's, it's something we found throughout the project was almost every tool broke from... <laughs> it, it was quite bizarre that everything we came across just didn't work as expected. And you're, you're pointing out the, the blur is 
is one of the examples that I always go to of like something as simple as a, a 2D blur doesn't work in a lat long environment that you want to blur the horizon less than you blur the top and bottom. Uh, and so that stuff, part of it was just being diligent that our 2D team had to be incredibly careful um, and simple tasks such as Roto just took longer. Um, and then uh, the other side for it was there wasn't sort of a an overarching fix everything R&D tool that was created. It was much more plugging all those little gaps of uh, writing lots of little small tools that allowed us to tie together faster renders in Nuke and more intuitive ways of working and our review process in, in RV that everyone can, can see. Uh, and then looking at, <clears throat> we did write uh, uh, a blur that allowed us to blur a lat long so that it was correct for that spatial understanding of the, the stretching at the top and the bottom. Um, but I mean, just, I to, just to build out from that, like if the blur changes on a brush or a simple motion blur, it also breaks on roto when you have a soft edge on your roto. It also breaks if you just want to put a power window in there for grading, that the power window is way softer at the top of frame than it is in the middle of frame, which has yep. got to be bizarre. Um, I mean, how did you solve color timing? Coloring, there was a, a huge amount of back and forth. Um, it was great that we, we did all the color here in-house. Um, Greg Reese did all our color for us. And then we just had this back and forth between what he could do and what we needed to... He'd give us a lot of style frames. He would uh, work with grading a certain area that he knew he wanted to put a, a power window onto or, or grab hold of separately. And then we'd work back and forth between Nuke and him as could we provide this as an ID that allowed him to do it seamlessly or was it something that we needed to do more industriously within the comp. And then there was also ways that we found of, say, to solve the, the edge of frame issue, that we would essentially overscan the, issue, the, the entire frame, <clears throat> take a small slither of the left hand of frame and stick it on the right side, and a small slither of the right hand of the frame and stick it on the left side, so you have this safe zone buffer. Right. So you don't get a seam because you've got an overlap. Exactly. Right. And it, it wasn't even necessary that there'd be a power window, it's just you start to realize that all the software that we use has some kind of algorithm in it to deal with the fact that it's at the edge of image, that it's, you know, it's, it's expecting pixels to be next to it and you're at the edge of image, so it has to invent that information. And it, it does the best that it can, but when you rewrap it together, it almost always introduces some kind of a scene. So at each phase, you have to fiddle around with it did you export mats for color timing? I mean, imagine if you had a CG character, you've got a mat that works in light long. So if you gave that mat, as bizarre as it may look to us, over to the grader, they could grade through that or not? We did, yeah. Right. We had mats for our hero characters and for the main monster to, to help overcome those issues. So are all these tools, I mean, if we just talk about compositing now for a second, are all these tools now things that you've put into Nuke that you could use should some other VR project come along? Or is this sort of very much you were solving the problems conceptually and doing whatever it needed to get the job done, but you'd sort of have to start over if you did another one of these? No, I think, I mean, a lot of these tools have been 
they've been since we've been working on such a long time, they've also been tested and revised as we went, and we could definitely reuse a lot of these tools. But most important is actually the knowledge how to deal with problems that comes up and to have the correct people. It takes, I would say it takes like two to three weeks just to get used to working with it. And the people that we use were all very senior compositors. We didn't really have a, like a lot of less experienced com compositors. They were all kind of very high, high level compositors and almost like software agnostic since we had to move through Nuke, uh, Mari, Maya, anything just to get, get the job done, basically. I mean, let's not beat around the bush. This wasn't a low-budget indie film. I mean, this was like a serious production. Absolutely, yeah. So I think overall there were like 81 people involved, but I don't think that's your number. How, how big was your team? Uh, that is our number. Eight, oh, that's one. your number. Oh, wow. <laughs> that's, uh, <clears throat> and I wouldn't say that that was what the team was throughout the project, but it would be 81 of our, our staff um, touched the project at some point or other. Um, and there were certainly times where we'd have in excess of 40 people all on the project at, at one time. And then being such a big project, there was that whole phasing to it of having our asset builders come in and, and build all our assets, our tracking team working on it. Uh, and then rolling those guys off and bringing in our lighting and rendering and animation and rolling that through to uh, the really substantial 2D team that we have to have to, to tie it all together at the end. It does seem to me that this is something that falls more heavily on the shoulders of your 2D team. Not that the, the delineation between 2D and 3D is as clear as it once was, but it does feel like it's more of a you know like tracking problem, a comping problem, a grading problem than it is a 3D problem. Or am I wrong in that assumption? I mean, assuming I make a character and I make it well and I make it with good textures, then you're just rendering it through the right, the right render camera. But that's not the case for 2D. Did it fall more on the 2D guy's shoulders? It, I think it was a quite an even split in many ways. Okay. It, was, uh, it raises as many issues in 3D as it does in 2D. Um, Could you explain that? When you start to look at uh, the continuous nature of the shot and the fact that you can't escape your framing, uh, <laughs> you don't get to wipe a simulation of one of our, say, our, our spaceship crash. There's no way of wiping it off a frame. It has to resolve in an elegant manner, and you don't have that excuse of, well, well, we'll get this far in this shot, and then when we cut to the next shot, we'll figure out another way of, of simulating that or getting what we want. Things had to, to work in a much more realistic way. Um, and the same went for everything, that your assets had to hold up to this constant viewing that if you just stare in one direction, does it maintain its realism? Does it keep going? Does it hold up throughout all those different angles? Uh, it robbed us a lot of you know, the, the cheaper ways of making environments. We did use a lot of matte painting, but it was for slightly more distant objects. Um, just because you, you can't have that feeling of cards, you can't have that, that feeling of uh, a traditional directional view where it's quite 2D. Um, but then having said that, I, I consider the way that the 2D team worked was, was quasi-3D really. Like yeah. we, <clears throat> we used all kinds of tools. Yeah, I think that just this, 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 is, this is split. I think our, like CG, it's, it's all very 
heavy, it's long renders, it's long simulations, and it's like Wayne says, you need to take into consideration that you don't normally do. And 2D had just like a lot of problem solving uh, going on, which would also slow the tedious. Basically, you, as a compositor, you might, might be used to like a 20 minute render of a comp is, you know, that's a pretty long render. And now we're talking days all of a sudden before you can review your stuff, you're rendering for two days. And then you see what you did wrong or you missed. That revision and like is, I think, one of the one of one of the hardest things to to deal with. Also because it's a continuous camera, um, and I don't know any composers that actually likes working on a two and a half minute shot times whatever it was. I can't even remember in the end, but it's <laughs> ten thousand frames, something like that. And then you know, just if you do one minute and you miss miss a map, that's kind of sucks. Rendering two days and you realize what you missed in all four directions, that sucks even more. I think that was that's what we learned. <laughs> so having shot a bit with the red camera and done my first share of compositing in the day, I was kind of surprised you guys went with blue screen. It would have I would have thought that was going to be noisier and harder to work with. Is there anything would you I mean if you're looking back and doing this project again immediately, lessons learned, would you do it blue screen again? I think I would. Uh, just be, I mean, since it was shot at night, it yep. was a night. I mean, when we're in the subway, it wouldn't really make a difference, to be honest. But anything outside kind of helps. I feel always to have the blue. It just feels more natural. And also, it was <laughs> it was kind of not necessarily our <laughs> final choice. Yeah. Uh, you know the the kind of caliber that Google managed to to pull together with Justin on this uh, talent was was really fantastic and we had Claudio Miranda as one of our DPs and uh, he's, he really he's shot a few things in his day exactly yes. <laughs> so when he when he pulled the trigger and said he felt he wanted to go with blue um, you know he inspires quite a lot of confidence so it, it seemed like a good idea um, and apart from all of these technical aspects we're talking about like if this project was just a normal project I'd probably point to the fact you seem to have needed to make an enormous amount of assets and stuff for a project like this that was you know I mean looking at it it looks great obviously but there's a lot of set replacement a lot of props a lot of stuff that went into this um, did it you know again would you like go for having this much uh, stage work and or was that absolutely vital to make it sort of work because of the stitching and all the other problems uh, we needed to go in the direction of the stage just to have the control. We did attempt shooting it on location and with the, the really ambitious camera moves that, that Justin wanted, it just wasn't working. To, to get the, that smooth, huge movement, we needed really solid pick points for our, our cable camera rig. And then considering that you're polluting your environment already with fans and, and a lighting crew and where does your you know your VTR tent just sit on location and all of a sudden it's in camera you realize you're spending so much effort filming a real location that you're gonna have to deconstruct and, and rebuild anyway that the the idea to shoot on on a stage for what we were doing made a lot of sense and it's the way I'd go again yeah and, and I'm not sure if maybe I missed but yeah I would say even even less the lesser thing you can have on the stage if you want to make a lot of the better it is actually because really even the smallest even the smallest little things is going to cause issue if it's an issue.
so Daniel, did you if you're doing it again, would you have cars there with all the reflections on them in the blue bonnet and stuff? <laughs> no. Yeah, it looked like that was pretty hard. Uh, yeah, some of those cars were lighting up pretty blue from the uh, yeah. B-roll. Yeah, those are those those cars are not my friend. Yeah, <laughs> and then you've got to get reflections in them, which is yeah. to say, deal with the curvature of the car and the curvature of the lens, and everything yeah. else that's going on. It's uh, it's fairly unforgiving. It's very unforgiving, and yes, and also trying to work and try to patch something up. Say you're working a lap, and when you're going around, say a small corner at the front of the car, what may look correct, even in the if that thing is in the center. Once you expand it out to 3D space, you realize what you just painted is not on the correct side of the car. For instance, if you want to fix something, it's very unforgiving. And cars will all know how they look, and they're very, very, very tricky to work on. So, Daniel, if you're presenting a shot for approval, like it's, it's I mean, you know, you normally play a shot back a number of times. But you have to play the shot looking in every direction a number of times. So it must have just, like even just getting shots approved before you even took it up to the director, before Justin ever saw it, you'd have taken a while just to review a shot, wouldn't you? Absolutely, yeah. Um, again, it's, it's one of those things that just took so much longer than you'd expect. Uh, we'd invite uh, you know, other senior people in the office to come and take a new perspective uh, on it and then they'd join us thinking that it'd be an hour or two process and two days later they can't they just couldn't believe you know how much time sucked up and how do you uh, how do you put a note like normally you'd say in the top left corner of frame i think i saw uh you know a light that wasn't right but the top left corner of frame is an, a meaningless concept in in this case yeah um the the tools that we wrote in rv work really well for that that right. you can toggle really quickly between your uh a rectilinear perspective and the lat long so that you can look around see what you want to make a note on jump out into your uh, into your full lat long and scribble some notes directly on the frame we had our, all our annotation tools set up in that that player uh, that we could email directly out to the team um, but it was just hours days of myself and Daniel just sitting there watching it again and again and again writing notes and you did warm up to the format you, you you started to have that grasp of being able to sit there and watch the lat long and, and make that jump to to what it was going to be. There were certainly the issues that, that Dan's talking about, about cars and straight lines where no matter how much you stare at it, you you think you've drawn a straight line in a lat long format and you, you wrap it out and it's all wonky and weird. But getting the feel of things and the space of them, you, you kind of warm up to that format. We did review the same, both me and Wayne, we'd kind of pick each scene and we would separately review it and we would find different things, which was kind of, that's how tricky, I mean, even how you were super careful on reviewing, finding stuff, Wayne would find something else or I would find something else. So yeah, the review process was quite tedious, but the tools that we wrote tremendously helped. I, I think, wasn't James, was James head of your R&D, is that right? So you must yeah. have bought him a beer or two. Yeah. 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 His whole team were just so useful. Like they they got it and I think they were just really excited to have uh, an R and D project where it's you see what you're you know, what they're developing being used so quickly. Um, that there it's not that they were doing abstract R and D for, for a pipeline or something that wasn't being used in anger straight away. Um, for anything, you know, we had this 
constant dialogue with them that they'd develop something, we'd be using it, we'd ask for little changes, we'd play around with it. And then we also had very technical guys, guys like uh, Patrick Heinen, one of our 2D guys who's very technically minded to bridge that gap and help sort of uh, coalesce our R&D team with our artist team. Did you have any sound considerations? Was sound all being post-sunk to what you did or did you have to go off audio cues? Or uh, There were some cues that we took from the footage. They were as much visual as audio. Um, and the, the main sort of collaboration that we did with the sound guys is we gave them positional tracking for all the hero objects so that they could parent the different sounds to those spatial positions to get that, that fully immersive sound. Right, of course, because there's no point in just saying uh, it's the, tri- the train is on the left. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, we, we set up a nice little back and forth with uh, Google and the sound guys and everyone else of uh, delivering 3D locators and uh, shipping that stuff around. I mean, was there, I mean, I'm not fishing for any dirt, but does, just out of curiosity, was there any complexity problems in just like and getting up to speed, I mean, away from your team now in just like saying to someone, we want you to look at this or review this or even just provide a, a work in progress and then have to spend like a, I don't know, send a, a PDF explaining what the hell they were looking at. Because, I mean, it'd be possible to look at a lat long and just think this is broken simply because you don't understand what you're looking at. I mean, it, it must be some kind of internal education to explain this, I guess. I guess Google's pretty literate to start off with technically. Yeah, we... I'd say one of the, the key examples of what we had to take on was we wrote our own version of essentially what the end app is um, right. that uh, Google were uh, sort of waiting for the project to be finished and then they were going to sink their, their teeth into it in terms of how do they optimize it for the device. Um, and we had uh, their earlier versions of their encoders uh, right from the outset of the project, but it took days to encode uh, just 45 seconds of footage uh, to get it to play on a phone or to get it to view it in some, some kind of way that resembled what the final device would be. So again, James and his team put together our own version that did essentially the same thing, allowed you to look around in any direction. It was sort of a amalgamation of the same code that we used for mill stitch and that we put into RB, but running in on the tablet. And it also, the Google's version runs off of Cubic Maps, whereas we were working in Latlong, so right. they made it run off of Latlong, so there's none of that translation. So there was a really quick way of getting it in front of ourselves, and that was sort of indicative of how we, uh, our responsibilities just sort of kept expanding from not just doing the post, but then writing that as a review tool. And then we shipped out tablets to everyone else who was involved with our app on it so that we could just post a, uh, a movie file of our, our lat long, our latest posting. They could pop it onto our app and they got the view that you kind of expect from the final device. I mean, the, uh, curse, the curse that you had, which is also the joy, is that a tablet or a phone these days has really great resolution. In fact, pretty good colorimetry. I mean, they're just quite good at displaying stuff. Obviously, small, but, you know, they're not crappy devices like they once were. Absolutely. Yeah, we, there was a lot of debate at the very start of the project of what resolution are we going to come with, you know. We, we really wanted to nail that down because it affected 
what we were expecting out of our camera rig, how many cameras to put in, what kind of lens to put on that. Um, and I think where we where we ended up at uh, a 4K by 2K lat one map is sort of <clears throat> a nice sweet spot of what's achievable, what you can actually manage. I don't think anything much above that would have ever fit through an effects pipeline. Um, and it, it works really well. Like uh, As we started to review it on uh, tablets, it, it looked great. Well, it does look great. That's the great thing about it. And uh, it is an amazing project. I, I really hope that this now opens the door to a bunch of other associated kind of uh, projects because it'd be great to use that uh, technology. And obviously your team is, uh, has got that experience that's so invaluable. So congratulations on the project. And thanks so much for taking time to talk to us. Thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. See you guys. See ya. Well, thanks, guys. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Um, I, I certainly have been learning a lot about VR lately, and I'm, I, it kind of combines all the things I didn't like about stereo in terms of complexity and, and takes it up even another level. But it certainly is a huge, new, booming area within our industry and uh, one that will touch all of us, I'm sure, at some point or another. So I'd like to mention at the end of the podcast our FX Insider program, which is a program that we came up with to offer people a way to support us and help us grow our content and expand our articles so we give you exclusive access to content uh, that is not available to the general public for a very affordable cost details are at fxguide.com click the fx insider tab this has been the fx podcast we also produce two other audio podcasts the vfx show reviews visual effects and current releases as well as classic films and the rc podcast covers digital cinematography Also, make sure you check out our sister site, fxphd.com, that offers extensive online visual effects training. Well, that'll do it for this episode. For my partners, Mike Seymour and John Montgomery, I'm Jeff Huser. We'll see you on the next FX Podcast. Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is copyright FX Guide LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.